Welcome to another edition of On the Road with Legal Talk Network. This is Lawrence Coletti, and I'm the host for today's show, which is being recorded on location at the 2019 California Lawyers Association annual meeting in beautiful, sunny, and just incredible Monterey, California. And joining me now, it is my pleasure to once again welcome my hero, my legal hero to the microphone, Dean Irwin Chimerinsky. Welcome to the show. Thank you. That's so kind of you to say. Well, I know the audience probably gets tired of me saying this, but uh, Dean Irwin Chimerinsky is probably the reason I passed constitutional law section on the bar. So thank you so much for being succinct in your lecturing. I am sure you would have passed anyway, but again, thank you for saying that. <laughs> so well, welcome to the show. I got I, I was a special treat. I didn't even have a ticket. I uh, had to uh, kind of finagle my way into, uh, into the lecture hall, but you just got done presenting at the Alexander F. Morrison lecture series here, and uh, your topic surprised me. I thought we were going to talk impeachment. It's been in the news. And so you, uh, you opened up with, uh, with a uh, lecture. It was about closing the courthouse doors. And so you went down a list of cases where the Supreme Court settles on, on, on a case or a matter and these different categories that uh, people are losing essentially their day in court. So, but um, before we get to that, I, did, I do want to just uh, let our audience know a little bit more about your expertise. I did want to talk about your bio. I know that you're the founding dean of UC Irvine School of Law, but uh, you've been in California and you've done a little stint out east and, and all of that. So I just wanted to get a feel for your resume before we got started. Sure. I grew up in Chicago. I grew up in a working class family. Neither my parents nor brother or sister went to college. So I was the first in my generation to get to go to college. I went to Northwestern and then to Harvard Law School. Practiced for a short time at the United States Department of Justice in a small public interest law office. I then taught at DePaul Law School in Chicago for three years. Got a job offer at the University of Southern California in 1983. And I'd always wanted to live someplace warm. I grew up in Chicago hating cold and snow. Taught at the University of Southern California for 21 years. Then at Duke Law School for four years. Then, as you said, was at UC Irvine for nine years. And now in my third year at Berkeley. Maybe it sounds like I can't keep a job, but I've just had an incredibly blessed career. Well, thank you so much. I've learned so much from you over the years, uh, especially some of your radio appearances with uh, Dr. John Eastman. I learned uh, so much in your disagreements. So uh, thank you so much for joining us again. So let's get to it. I definitely want to cut into this uh, lecture that you gave, again, on closing the courthouse doors. You gave several categories, uh, things I hadn't thought of previously, but uh, had a lot to do with sovereignty. And so why don't we start at the very top, uh, how does how is SCOTUS uh, in its in its uh, case decisions close the courthouse doors for people wanting to sue the states? The thesis of my talk is that through many different decisions and many different doctrines, the Supreme Court has kept those who are injured from ever being able to have their day in court. And so, one example that I talk about is sovereign immunity. This is the doctrine that says that the United States government and state governments cannot be sued no matter how egregious the harms they inflict. Okay, so we started with the, uh, the suing the state government, and that got trickled down into the Supreme Court's made it very difficult to sue even local government. The Supreme Court has said that local governments can be sued, but only if it can be shown that their own policy or custom violates the Constitution. And so I used as an example here a man who was wrongly convicted of murder and spent 18 and a half years on death row. 
It is only through a series of coincidences that his lawyers learn of blood evidence that had never been disclosed, Constitution required it be disclosed, and the blood evidence showed that he was innocent. And so they sued the prosecutor for violating the constitutional requirement from Brady versus Maryland of turning over potentially exculpatory evidence. And the Supreme Court five to four said the local government wasn't liable because it couldn't be shown that it had a policy that led to this. Justice Clarence Thomas said, one example isn't enough to prove a local government policy. But as Justice Ginsburg said, this wasn't one example. Five different lawyers in the office knew of the blood evidence, but none spoke up. There were other instances in this case of key evidence that wasn't turned over. There was a long pattern of the New Orleans Parish District Attorney's Office not turning over evidence as constitutionally required. So and that, that's the, uh, there's a jumping off point there. You, you brought up they were suing the prosecutor. And so even within that, you know, if you can't get to the state government, you can't get to the local government, now apparently there's, uh, there's some resistance to suing state officers. And what I talked about was that you can't sue state governments almost at all, and you're very limited the ability to sue local governments. So the reaction might be, well, why not sue the government official? And the Supreme Court has made it very difficult to sue government officials. As examples, all government officials, when sued for money damages, have either what's called absolute immunity or qualified immunity. Absolute immunity means just what it says. They can't be sued at all. So a prosecutor can't be sued for money damages for prosecutorial acts, even if the prosecutor knowingly uses perjured testimony, even if it leads to the conviction of an innocent person, even if that innocent person spends years in prison. Judges have absolute immunity for anything they do as judge, no matter how egregious, no matter how unconstitutional. Legislators have absolute immunity for the legislative acts. Police officers have absolute immunity and can't be sued for money damages for any testimony they give before a jury or grand jury, even if the police officer is intentionally lying, committing perjury, the police officer can't be sued. And even for those who don't have absolute immunity, they have what's called qualified immunity. They can be liable only if they violate clearly established law that every reasonable officer know and has to be a right established beyond dispute. And even conservatives in recent years, like University of Chicago Law Professor Will Bowd, Fifth Circuit Judge Don Willett, where the Cato Institute have been very critical of qualified immunity. In your talk, you're saying that over the years that has been more difficult to establish, uh, you know, establish that threshold for getting through that test. The Supreme Court has made absolute and qualified immunity barriers and often insurmountable barriers to many people whose constitutional rights have been violated for them ever to be able to gain a recovery. All right, so I'm going to fast forward, uh, and I'm going to change the order just a little bit. Anything. There's one that I wanted to close on, which I think you know is very important today, obviously, and coming up. So let's talk about pleadings and civil actions. In the 1930s, the federal rules of civil procedure were adopted, and they were based on the philosophy that so long as a person has a possibility of a claim, the person should be able to go forward, gain discovery, that summary judgment should be the place of screening non-meritorious claims. In fact, the Supreme Court in Conley versus Gibson in 1950 said, so long as there's a possibility, unless it can be said that it's impossible for the plaintiff to cover, the case should go forward. In 2007 in Bell Atlantic versus Twombly, and in 2009 in Ashcroft versus Iqbal, the Supreme Court on its own changed the standard. There was no indication of a problem with the standard, but the Supreme Court made it much more restrictive. 
And the Supreme Court said a plaintiff has to prove enough facts that it's plausible that he or she can recover. And many studies have been done, including by the Federal Judicial Center, that show that this new heightened standard of pleading has meant that many more civil rights cases are being dismissed at the motion to dismiss stage. Okay, so the next one is kind of a fun one for me because I learned that my hero, my legal hero, does not read the service terms agreements when he buys his iPhone. So this is the uh, favoring arbitration over litigation. I confess, I don't read the service terms for anything that I buy. And my point here is that the Supreme Court has, over the last couple of decades, strongly favored enforcing arbitration agreements, even though it means that aggrieved people will never get their day in court. And so in Circuit City versus Adams in 2001, St. Clair Adams filled out a job application for Circuit City, and on the back of the form, in small print, was that if any dispute with Circuit City, it would have to go to arbitration, not to court. He wanted to bring a discrimination claim against Circuit City, but the Supreme Court said, the fine print said, you have to go to arbitration. Or a case from this decade, AT&T Mobility versus Concepcion. The Concepcions went to get cell phones from AT&T. AT&T had advertised free cell phones for those who signed up for the service. And the Concepcions were upset when they were being charged $30.80 in sales tax. So they wanted to be a part of a class action suit against AT&T. But part of the service agreement was a clause that said they need a dispute with AT&T. It had to go to arbitration. It can't go to adjudication. And the Supreme Court 5-4 to four said they couldn't go to court, notwithstanding the California Supreme Court saying such clauses shouldn't be enforceable. So, and you said there's a, uh, not a peculiar, but sort of an unintended consequences, perhaps. Uh, this affects class actions. What the Supreme Court has said is, is that arbitration clauses can require that it be individual arbitration and preclude not only class action suits in court, but class-wide arbitration. And so in the context of AT&T Mobility versus Concepcion, as Justice Breyer said in his dissent, the alternative isn't going to be 100, 1,000, a million separate arbitrations at AT&T. It's going to mean no arbitrations at AT&T because no one's going to bring an arbitration for $32.80. Justice Breyer said where we need class actions is where a large number of people have each suffered a small injury, a small loss of money. Or I mentioned in my lecture a Supreme Court case from 2018, Epic Systems versus Lewis, which said that an employer can insist as a condition of employment that an employee submit any dispute to binding single arbitration. Now, the National Labor Relations Act protects the right to engage in concerted activity, mutual aid or protection. But the Supreme Court said that doesn't matter. The employer gets to insist on arbitration and individual arbitration at that. All right, so I saved the best for last, and so this is the partisan gerrymandering. On Thursday, June 27th of this year, the Supreme Court decided Rucho versus Common Cause. It comes out of North Carolina. North Carolina is basically a purple state. It went for Obama in 2008, Romney in 2012, Trump in 2016, but it was always 51, 49, or 52 to 48 percent. Republicans, when they gained control of the North Carolina State Legislature, sought to redraw congressional districts to maximize the number of seats for Republicans. And in a written report, it said the goal was to give Republicans 10 of 13 seats from North Carolina. And they said they would try to draw a map to give themselves more than that, if only they could figure out a way to do it. They had a computer draw 3,000 possible different maps 
of how North Carolina might have its seats allocated for the House of Representatives. And they picked the one most likely to give it 10 of 13 seats. It worked. In November 2016, Republicans, Democrats, got almost exactly the same number of votes cast for seats in the House of Representatives. But Republicans ended up with 10 of 13 seats. A three-judge federal district court declared this unconstitutional as denying equal protection. But the Supreme Court, five to four, said that federal courts cannot hear challenges to partisan gerrymandering. Chief Justice Roberts wrote for the court, joined by the four other conservative justices. Justice Kagan wrote a blistering dissent, joined by the three other liberal justices. Chief Justice Roberts said, we don't have any standards when partisan gerrymandering violates the Constitution. Therefore, it's a political question to be left to the political process. The federal courts can't hear such challenges. So even though this is a matter of, of a political decision-making, uh, decision uh, you, you were very adamant about how serious this was to closing courthouse doors. I mean, the, uh, you know, just the inability to vote or vote dissolution, as you put it, uh, had a profound impact. It's a tremendous impact. It's not only about equal protection of vote dilution, it's also about the First Amendment. It's discriminating against people based on their political party affiliation. The Supreme Court in the 1960s said the challenges to malapportionment had to be heard in federal courts because we couldn't leave it to the political process. Yet here the court saying that partisan gerrymandering can't be challenged in federal courts. As Justice Kagan said, in a democracy, it's supposed to be that voters choose their elected officials. Partisan gerrymandering means that elected officials get to choose their voters and they can draw the maps to entrench themselves in power. So the reason I saved this, uh, this particular case for last, the, the partisan gerrymandering in uh, Rucho v. Common Cause, was that you talked about interesting non-denials. And so kind of a theme throughout some of these decisions that uh, you brought up. So we talked about you know, suing state governments, suing local governments and government officials. And it seems to be that a lot of these Supreme Court decisions hang on things that weren't said or aren't, uh, aren't encased in the Constitution. And so um, why did you bring that part up, the interesting non-denials? The conservatives on the court now and for the last few decades have stressed looking at the text of the Constitution and framers' intent. Well, what's so interesting about these areas is there's nothing in the text or the framers' intent to support the result that conservatives have come to. Take sovereign immunity where we started. I gave an example of a case that I argued and lost in the Supreme Court last term where the Supreme Court held that a state cannot be sued in another state's court. There's nothing in the Constitution about that. It was never discussed at the Constitutional Convention. Or we talk most recently about partisan gerrymandering. There's nothing in the Constitution that explains why this can't be heard in the federal court. This is nothing but conservative justices keeping the government, keeping business from being able to be sued. How is it that the Supreme Court can't recuse itself from matters where it doesn't have some type of precedent or, or there just isn't something in the law? Why, why can't they recuse themselves from a decision? Well, I don't know that recuse is the right word. The recuse would be to be disqualified by virtue of a conflict of interest. And there's no conflict of interest in the matters that I'm talking about. I think the question is, when should the judiciary get involved and when should it not be involved? And so I think it's very important for the judiciary to be there when people's rights are violated. If a state government violates somebody's rights, that person should have a day in court. If a local government causes a person to lose liberty or life, there should be a remedy in court. If the government engages in unconstitutional partisan gerrymandering, the courts need to be there to provide a remedy. My thesis is that in all of these areas, and in so many more, the court is really closed the courthouse doors. 
So my last question for you, sure. Dean Chemerinsky, you know, you could have talked about impeachment. You could have talked about free speech on campus. So why did you pick this particular topic? I thought a lot about the topic. The Morrison lecture leaves it up to the lecturer as to what to talk about. In my initial instinct, and I would say through the middle of this week, possibility was to talk about the impeachment process in Washington. And yet I realized that I have relatively little to say that people don't already know, that there's been so much and will be so much media coverage about it. I worried that I would be just telling people what they're already reading. In terms of free speech on campus, um, I thought about talking about that. I have a book on the subject. But ultimately, I chose this because when the Supreme Court closes the courthouse doors, it doesn't make headlines. What I said in my talk is, if the Supreme Court were to hold that states can give unlimited amount of aid to parochial schools, that would be headlines in every newspaper. But if the Supreme Court says no one is standing to sue to challenge government aid to parochial schools, no one pays any attention. So there's really responsibility of us as lawyers to learn about this, to inform the public, and to pressure for change, because we're the ones who know about access to courts. And ultimately, I think it's a legal profession that's responsible for upholding the rule of law. Well, Dean Chimerinsky, thank you so much for coming by and, uh, you know, giving us some insights and, and uh, rehashing your lecture uh, for us. I think it was incredible. I learned a lot once thank again you. being taught by uh, Dean Chimerinsky here. Thank so you. Before we close it out, though, you know, if our listeners, they want to follow up with you, learn a little bit more, how can they find you? Sure. My email address is easy to find. I'm at Berkeley Law School, and I'm the only Chemerinsky there. So if you go to the website for UC Berkeley Law School, just look for Chemerinsky. But my email address, if anybody wants it, is E-C-H-E-M-E-R-I-N-S-K-Y at law.berkeley.edu. Always a pleasure, sir. Thank you so much for stopping by. Uh, my great pleasure. Thank you for having the program again. Also, thank you to our listeners for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or best yet, your favorite podcasting app. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Until next time, thank you for listening. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook. Or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thank you.